from savoring chocolate as a meditation practice to develop mindfulness to cultivating fierce compassion with loved ones and strangers and identifying pathways to extraordinary happiness. There's a lot to be excited about in this conversation with Diane. First, I want to extend a warm welcome to you. Thank you for listening. I'm Robin Stratton Burkessel, host and creator of the show. And I'm truly honoured to have you as a listener. Because... There are more than 700,000 other shows out there. So let me get started with this one. In keeping with this season's topic of appreciative embodying, my guest Diane Gayhart speaks to many beautiful, no, beyond beautiful, actually, She speaks to many exquisite themes that speak to embodying the fullness, the wholeness, and the joy of who we are as human beings. And before I continue, I'd love to welcome you, Diane, to Positivity Strategist Podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Robin. You are a practitioner, a professor, a researcher of psychotherapy, And your areas of research and practice include mindfulness, Buddhist psychology, couple and family therapy, trauma, and all manner of relationships. Now, her latest book is the focus of our conversation today, and it has an intriguing title. It's called Mindfulness for Chocolate Lovers, a lighthearted way to stress less and savor more each day. So, Diane, you share some fun and heartwarming stories in this book. And as we know, stories connect us and make the world go round. I'd like to start by inviting you to share one other story, a personal story. And I ask all my guests this, and that's a story that perhaps comes to mind just in the moment of what you can point to in your background that may have influenced you to be who you are today and the work that you do. Oh, wow. That is, that is a tough question to start with. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I think, I think what comes to mind for me is that, um, and this is something I realized much later in life, but my parents come from uh, very unusual backgrounds. And both of them happen to be very rural, European, um, it's like self-sustaining farmers and goat herders. My dad actually grew up in a um, small village out in uh, in rural um, Austria outside of Vienna, and all his family needed was salt to survive. And he tells me that they actually used that oxen to plow the fields, and I, I think he, he means it. And my mom's family, um, they were semi-migrant goat herders, you know, between Argos and Sparta, and they had to move, you know, um, from one part, you know, of where the goats were eating, one part of the country to another, you know, as the seasons changed. And there was something, both of them have this uh, sense of community that we need each other to survive. My father always said, you couldn't steal anything in Swingendorf because everyone knew that was far- Farmer John's um, hammer. And it was impossible <laughs> to steal. And so I think, you know, I, I think 
what I learned, you know, and here my parents have moved to Southern California, you know, in a very different culture and region, but those that, that belief in community and how we have to work together with others, the importance of integrity and honesty, and some very old world values, I think they imparted to me. And I, I think that's part of where some of my journey has been in trying to make sense of life and the suffering we have in this life and what happiness really is and how we find it. So I think even though um, those are kind of like background influences in a person's life, I, I'm the older I get, the more I appreciate uh, how some of that has trickled down through the generations. Mm. I love that you say that. You know, I think we, our generational or our cultural inf- backgrounds are so important. I mean, I come from Australia, British heritage, and it's, you know, I, I, a lot of stuff comes up frequently. So I think that cultural thing and that sense of belonging is really key. But now I have an insight as to why you, you're being in Salzburg and having some <laughs> German, having some German names in some of the acknowledgements and references you make in your book. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> and I, I do think the Austrian side of the family has influenced my love of chocolate because that is what we got for Christmas every year. So, Of course, yeah. And speaking of chocolate, there are a lot of sweet, delicious insight in your book. Um, it's a lovely blend of science and spirituality and everyday common events that we all face, whether, you know, both challenges and joys. So I'm curious, Diane, in writing this book, Mindful Mindfulness for Chocolate Lovers, what were some of the high points during your process and what do you value most about what you've created? Well, I really wanted to make it a fun introduction, not just to the practice of mindfulness meditation, because that's really hard for most people to integrate into their lives, but to invite people to um, explore the, the philosophy and ideas behind the Buddhist psychology that informs mindfulness, which has so many overlaps with our contemporary Western positive psychology. And there's so much we know about happiness that, you know, the ancients knew that contemporary science knows, but the average person I meet on the street doesn't know these things. And so I really wanted to create something that was accessible to everyone um, to better understand how to more effectively pursue happiness, because I think a lot of us um, get off on the wrong track. In the pursuit of happiness, you mean? Yes, yes. There's a lot of myths out there, I think, that have us looking for happiness in all the wrong places. Yeah. So what do you want your readers then to value about the message in your book? What do you want them to know or feel or do, you know? I think the most important takeaway is that we all have a lot of choice and a lot of decisions to make um, in terms of our happiness and that happiness is really our happiness is something we have control over and we can it really is and I think it should best be seen as a choice we make it's a life skill we can develop it's not Mm -hmm. like we have to sit around and wait for our dreams to come true to be happy that we learn you can adopt a, a way of looking at and understanding happiness that's much more effective and what the research really supports is that happiness is a life skill. It's about attitudes we have and habits we develop. And I try to make those habits easier to develop in this book. Yeah. And you do that so well. And I'll come to that because I really want to draw attention to the beautiful worksheets that 
you share um, and they're on your website. So we'll come all to that. But I just want to keep, I want to get to the chocolate piece. Okay. <laughs> of course, always. Um, and, you know, and the practices and, and, you know, the beliefs and so on are, are really, they come out through this. So you say that um, while knowledge about the effect of mindfulness in solving health problems is widespread, you know, it's people yeah. talk about this much more today. The, people are also lack the motivation and the willingness to follow through with the practice. So by enticing people to mindfully eat a piece of chocolate, you say, helps them to focus their attention differently and begin to make the small incremental changes in their awareness that will lead to sustainable happiness. So talk to me about the role of chocolate. Okay, with pleasure. Um so chocolate meditation actually came about, I've been teaching meditation for over 20 years, and one of the introductory um, exercises that are very common in, in um, uh, models like, you know, mindfulness-based stress reduction is to introduce, first introduce an eating meditation because it's concrete, you can guide people through it, and it's a very gentle introduction to mindfulness. It's, and uh, because it's concrete, I think many people under, get the concept more easily than just watching their breath, which is a more difficult thing for some people to connect with. And I mean, honestly, I was traveling and speaking and I'd put a box, you know, all those little mini boxes of raisins and half the time they'd be crushed when I, you know, when I got to my uh, destination <laughs> and I'm like, I gotta find something that travels a little bit better. And I do love chocolate. And I um, thought about doing chocolate and it really um, was a hit. And part of the reason is it's actually a more um, difficult uh, meditation than the traditional raisin eating meditation. When I do mindfulness in schools, I do it with children and I use fruit, you know, like grapes. Um, but with chocolate, many of us have a strong emotional attachment to chocolate. Either we really like it or we really don't like it. Um, and so, and that makes it an exceptionally useful focus for meditation um, because there's a part where I, you know, you bring the chocolate up to your mouth, um, but you don't eat it. And you're, the task is just to watch what <laughs> thoughts go through your mind, you know, and you get to watch frustration, anticipation. For some people, it's dread, you know. Um, but all of that really helps um, prepare you for dealing with those types of emotions or at least offering different ways to deal with those emotions in the real world. And so many people find this um, uh, very helpful in that way. So, and the other piece that um, goes with the chocolate meditation is trying to taste the chocolate without judging it as good or bad, preferred or unpreferred, which can be very, very difficult again, because most of us have strong preferences for either liking or disliking chocolate. And so it offers, it just slows down that kind of, you know, rapid fire judgment we all have, our brains are designed to do it, you know, to make judgments quickly. Um, and it slows down that process. And it's um, just so concrete that a lot of people find it very helpful in terms of transferring it to their everyday lives. Hmm. And you have three chocolate meditations. So talk us through the progression of that and the intention behind that. This is the incremental approach, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And I was looking for as many ways as possible to interact with chocolate. So um, <laughs> so the first one is what I basically described. You just 
um, pick up a piece of, I, I like to use wrapped chocolate because it adds one more sense to it. And you begin mm-hmm. by very mindfully observing, observing, smelling, feeling it um, with the wrapper on. You slowly unwrap it, mindfully listen to the sound of the wrapper um, opening, which is really uh, always wonderful when you do it in a group setting because it, it often sounds like a crackling fire or a waterfall. <laughs> um, and then again, smelling it, you know, feeling in the texture. And then as I just, just described, putting it up to your lips, not eating it, and just watching what goes through your mind without judging it, and then trying to eat it without judging it or comparing it to what you had before. So that's the introductory um, chocolate meditation. And then later on, um, I do, I take that same concept, but I have you do it with white milk and dark. And uh, pretty much everyone has a preference for one of those three above the others. And again, that's just a much more um, challenging way to work with your preferences and your judgments and looking at how constructed they are. And the hope in that uh, exercise is to have you kind of quiet that judgment. You know, like I prefer dark chocolate. And to me, white is like not chocolate. It was in researching this book, I realized why they call it chocolate is because they use some of the cocoa butter. But I used to always say white chocolate isn't chocolate. It is. But, you know, but I have very strong feelings about it. And so it forces me to, you know, suspend that judgment for just a few moments to experience it without my story on top of it, which kind of opens up new possibilities for experiencing these three different phenomenon. And as a, as a psychotherapist, I do this all the time with my clients, but just not with chocolate. I try to get them to just suspend some of their automatic judgments, suspend some of their automatic, you know, storytelling about the value of something to open up space to see things a little bit differently. And I think this is a very, it's a very powerful exercise. And the last, um, the chocolate meditation number three is my favorite. Um, it is, it's in the chapter with, um, about crazy wisdom. And most people haven't heard the term crazy wisdom, but in the world of Buddhist psychology, it's kind of a counterpart to the kind of the seriousness of mindfulness and crazy wisdom is an, an a, a Buddhist tradition. We also have it in, you know, in the West and various other forms where you, you play with opposites um, to reveal kind of various life truths. Um, and so the Cohen is a famous uh, example of this. And, and so, you know, one of them is, you know, what's the sound of one hand clapping? And as your mind tries mm-hmm. to pu- answer that puzzle, um, uh, the idea is you will hopefully get new insights. And so with this particular exercise with chocolate um, is to take a piece of chocolate, Put a fun little note on it and then put it someplace where someone else is going to discover it, where they do not expect to see it at all. You know, you could put it in one of those, <laughs> if you work in an office setting and you have one of those, you know, pod machines, you can take one of the pods and stick a chocolate in there, you know, and put a, you know, a funny little note or saying on it that, you know, when a person finds it, um, they're just going to pause. It's going to get them out of their train of thought 
Um, and in this case, it's going to make them hopefully laugh and be a little bit shocked. But again, it creates that space for new ideas and new thoughts and new mm-hmm. perspectives to come in. And, and that's a lot of what we're playing with, with mindfulness. And you certainly can do it with sitting down with breath meditation. But there are lots of other ways you can do it that are just, I think, easier for um, those of us. Most of us have very busy lives in the 21st century, overwhelmed with information and uh, busy schedules. And so finding simple, little, you know, fun ways to kind of get us out of our the rut that our minds tend to just keep thinking about the same things over and over. And the more you can interrupt that, the more you can allow new, fresh ideas to come in um, that often help us with our daily struggles. Hmm. Thank you for explaining that because they're so powerful. And, you know, what I particularly like, Diane, is uh, if just with the first one, we get to experience all our senses, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so very often, you know, when you're, I mean, I do a lot of training as, as you do probably too, and, or, you know, one-on-one relationships with people as well. And, you know, to get people to sense, well, what does it taste like? What does it smell like? You know, when feeling you can do, touching you can do, hearing you can do, seeing you can do, but tasting and smelling is often more challenging if you're trying to get people to imagine something different. Mm-hmm. So I love the fact that you, you you can do that through this kind of meditation. The possibilities are just superb how you do that kind of pattern interrupt and get people to think about other possibilities. And the third thing that came to me um, in, in listening to you now, it's about the playfulness of it. Mm-hmm. Last one, particular. I mean, all of them are quite playful, and you know that playfulness takes us to a much different state from our usual way of being and engaging, particularly in the workplace. So, um, yeah, really, really powerful stuff um, done in a simple way. Ah, very nice. So you mentioned crazy wisdom, um, which is. Um, a great one and links into um, uh, Buddhist philosophy too. Is there anything else you could share with us about crazy wisdom? Oh, um, yeah, absolutely. And so crazy wisdom, so I would like, so it's about humor. It's about laughing. And I think it's important to also notice that not all humor is funny um, or helpful. Yes. And, and it's interesting. There, there's actually research on humor, you know, in the West. And so humor where you're, putting other people's people down or even yourself down um, are not as healthy or helpful in terms of promoting our happiness, but humor that is affiliative. So it brings people together um, that type of humor and, and this and the crazy wisdom is one that's kind of pointing out life's paradoxes and playing with those. And it helps you, I think, lighten up. And I, I think being able to laugh at, at some of the challenges we have in life or just how strange life is or how, how strange some of our cultural habits are. Um, I just, it's, it's very important in terms of promoting happiness and being able to laugh at life and especially when, when trouble hits, you know, and it doesn't mean you're, um, uh, that, that you don't take things seriously, but you don't take things over seriously. And, and so, and that is just so important and, and being able to do that. And and I think 
it, it can become a struggle at times as we become more stressed. We feel like we've got so many problems, um, you know, maybe at, in our lives at certain periods of time. And there's so many, you know, big problems in the world today. And it's very easy to kind of get bogged down and get very negative in your thinking where um, the um, crazy wisdom allows us in a very positive way to use humor, to keep a sense of perspective um, about whatever might be going on in our lives. Yeah, I think that's fabulous. And, you know, uh, you know, lightening up. And I think also, um, does it really feed into kind of um, non-attachment? So you can lighten up and move away from things that, you know, serious things or things that you ordinarily might feel very strongly about. And if you flip it around, you can create, use some, because you have a list in your book about some of the practices of crazy wisdom that will help you. So does it work with um, becoming less attached to certain things? Yeah, that's exactly what it was designed for. Mindfulness helps you become less attached in a very straightforward, logical way by letting your thoughts, you know, watching your um, breath and quieting those thoughts, not being attached to those. And that's the same thing that crazy wisdom um, does. And, you know, my kids seem to be really good at crazy wisdom. You know, for example, I can tell them to get dressed and they will literally get dressed in reverse. So their underwear is on their head, their shorts are on their arms and their shirt (laughs) is on their legs, you know, and, and there's a part of me that is, of course, irritated, because we need to get someplace. But another part of me is, is laughing pretty hard. And laughing just at the job, sometimes of being a mother, we're just like, yep, they got dressed, their clothes are on, I cannot argue with them on that point. And uh, that levity, that ability to laugh with them, um, and to laugh mm. at, you know, what the job is sometimes, sometimes I laugh a lot about being a parent, um, you know, being able to laugh, you know, really, how long will it take boys to flush a toilet? Like, how long? I've been working on this for quite a while here. Um, so I make <laughs> jokes like that. And that, that ability to laugh at the struggles that, you know, all parents face is really important in not taking it too seriously. You know, otherwise, I'd be screaming at my kids to get dressed. And that's really not the most helpful response in the moment. Um, and, and so it helps, you know, us realize just our assumptions and helps keep a, a perspective on things and it's so and not getting so attached um, to outcomes. And so it is, it's very, it's a, it's a healthy counterbalance because I think you can be very much into self-help and personal development, Buddhist psychology, spirituality. And even if you take that too seriously, you know, that mm-hmm. makes you less happy and that kind of it can take you to to a, an unhealthy place. There's actually a, a saying in Buddhism, which is if you meet the Buddha on the road, you know, kill him, which is pretty shocking to be part of a Buddhist mm-hmm. tradition. But the idea is, is if you take Buddhism to, if you're a Buddhist practitioner and you take the Buddhism too seriously, you know, um, that's not going to help you. That's not going to get you to a sane, happy place. And so even to become unattached from the teachings that you're using to help you less be less attached. Um, So I love the crazy wisdom notion and um, how you develop that and you talk about the appropriate and perhaps inappropriate ways of humor. And two other things that I truly valued um, in in your book, Diane, and you say it like already the very, very beginning uh, and it speaks to, you know, what this show is about. It's really embracing our wholeness so I would love for you to say something about what that means to you and how um, what you're teaching 
helps people honor their wholeness, not only the wholeness of themselves, but the wholeness um, of, you know, our communities. And you refer to that in your personal story about what you got from your parents, right? You value the community. So, um, yeah, I, I would, I'd love to hear your perspective on, on wholeness and how that really facilitates um, our deeper connection and um, acceptance of what is. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I, and I, th- I, I do talk about, even at the beginning and at the end, I talk about, you know, eating life whole, taking in the whole, all of it. And, and so much of what this book, what, which is based on both Buddhist psychology and, you know, more contemporary Western uh, positive psychology, um, one of the, I think the big takeaways when you start really studying serious, uh, uh, happiness seriously is that the typical way that at least many of us um, in the West 21st century approach happiness is we're trying to maximize all of our happy, pleasurable experiences and minimize anything negative. And it's just not possible. And being able to embrace, uh, you know, both the good and the bad, both the challenges and the joys, both the people that you can't stand and the people that you love, you know, the wholeness and realizing that um, being able to engage in all of life skillfully is what leads to happiness. And a lot of that comes from not getting too attached or too, which is another word for kind of getting rigid in the type of outcomes you want to have being, being able to, um, to develop what the Buddhists would call their definition of mental health is equanimity, being able to move mm-hmm. with the ups and downs of life gracefully. And, and I think that's a much more sustainable model for happiness than I'm going to maximize everything good in my life and you know minimize anything bad in my life because you just don't have that much control over life. And so being able to take yourself, both your strengths and your weaknesses, any quote unquote strength we see in ourselves in one context, it always is a weakness in another context. You know, for example, um, you know, if you look at, you know, people talk about being extroverts versus introverts, you know, an extroversion is a wonderful, you know, strength, you know, in terms of making people comfortable, getting conversations moving, you know, but they're the last person you want to actually negotiate a high stakes um, contract negotiation. On the other hand, introverts, um, are much better at doing high stakes conversations because they don't think out loud, which is what extroverts do. Any strength in one context is a liability or can be a liability in another. And so learning to to label things less rigidly as all good or all bad is so important and realizing that our, the context determines, you know, um, whether we see things as good or bad and just being able to move more fluidly with all of those, the complexity of life, I think is when I think of wholeness is realizing it's much more complex and um, being willing to embrace all of that. And I think one of the paradoxes is that when you, especially when you encounter those darker moments, when you can accept what is, it is amazing when, when it's a difficult struggle or a problem, when you're willing to emotionally, cognitively just accept what is, it's, it's amazing how it shifts and new possibilities and um, open up for you in a way that they weren't there beforehand. And it's just so important that we learn to, I think, engage life more skillfully. 
Hmm. So what might be some practices that you would recommend for people to, um, to have that insight and develop that, um, that skill? I mean, you know, you want to develop the quality of, um, you know, valuing your wholeness Mm -hmm. and then how, how might I do that? What skills do I have to develop? That is a, that's a big question. I I think a simple place to start, um, is really mindfulness. I mean, that is one of the, um, there is a lot of evidence that that helps you reduce those attachments. And I really think a simple way, if, you know, because most people have been introduced to the concept of mindfulness, but the vast majority of people I know do not practice on a regular basis. And I, I think I like the idea of just getting a, getting a beautiful bowl of some kind, putting chocolates or fruit or whatever you want to practice your eating meditation with and mm-hmm. at your workspace and every day, either for your coffee break in the morning or, um, after lunch to just do a little bit of chocolate meditation, or you could do it with fruit even, you can even do it with water or coffee, whatever you want to do. Um, but just yeah. to take two to five minutes to just be present and practice not judging those um, thoughts, or not judging whatever you're experiencing the moment and watching your mind as it gets frustrated or anticipates and to start creating mm-hmm. some of that space. And it's a very simple way to add that mindfulness practice um, to your routine. And it really just needs to be, you know, two, one minute, two minute, five minutes. And, but it just needs to be a little bit every day. And it's really remarkable, um, how that works. I actually, um, I'm a professor. And so I go to a lot of faculty meetings, um, which can be, um, very political, right. And, but one of the things I do is water meditation. I just sip water either before or during a meeting when it gets stressful to just let my mind be quiet, let it be still, and try to see whatever is before me in a fresh way. And it really just becomes a habit you have. And the more you practice, the easier it is to do that. And I I think when people are here that you need to practice mindfulness 20 minutes a day, I mean, you almost need to quit your job for most of us to slow down enough to get that 20 minutes in. Um, Mm -hmm. It's really a challenge. And so just finding simple, small, little ways. And if the chocolate meditation is not your thing, you know, using you know, chocolate meditation number three and and creating little, you know, surprises for people to add joy to their life. It's so much fun to play a kind joke like that to, you know, bring a little light to someone else's life. It also lights your, your life up and realizes how easy it is to build connection with others with just a little bit of kindness and humor. Absolutely. As I was listening to you, what was coming up for me when you talk about drinking or, you know, go through the so-called chocolate, but it might be something different. Um, it's about anchoring, right? Absolutely. So anchoring something that you can anchor in your consciousness and draw it out when you need to. So with intentionality, I need to not speak right now. I just need to take a sip of water <laughs> or whatever it is. Um, and the third thing that I really valued was the compassion, particularly fierce compassion, how that can really, again, help in our relationships, help with our sense of um, self-love, self-compassion, and then fierce compassion, what that means in order to be able to connect with strangers or with with, you know, family members who might be challenging and it's even more difficult. So I'd love you to say a little bit about 
you know, how your what that means for our listeners here today. So fierce compassion is a term that comes out of the Buddhist psychology. And I, I think a, a good way of defining it is um, the Dalai Lama always says, I didn't learn, learn compassion from my fellow Tibetans, you know, because if I like them, they like me. That's a good business deal. I mean, there's not, you're not stretching much to be compassionate to someone who's compassionate back to you. He says, and the Dalai Lama says, it's the Chinese who taught me compassion because mm. um, they're the ones I had to stretch and grow and find a place in my heart to have compassion for them. And so it's really the people we have difficult relationships with. We want to judge them harshly are the, pe- way, are the people who can actually teach us what it means to be compassionate, that concept of fierce compassion, that you are going to keep your heart open even when it's really, really difficult. You know, we live at a time where there's a lot of political polarization going on and it's a time, you know, learning. So if you're feeling, you know, pulled one direction or another in that conflict, being able to pause and say, you know, what is the good that the other side that I'm frustrated with, or if it's in your personal life, what is the good that this family member is aspiring to? How can I try to understand that better? Is there anything I can do to help help um, that person achieve that goal? Because we, we all do the best we can with the information we have in that moment, and we're all pr- trying to pursue some form of good. And, and sometimes it's way off base. I have to, you know, agree with that. Um but there is there is no person on earth who who does things where they there's not some impulse to do some kind of good and how they're defining it even if it's kind of in a, a not healthy way, and so the fierce compassion is about pausing, being willing to see the humanity in that person, to try to get into their headspace to understand how they're constructing good in their world, and hopefully by humanizing them in those moments being able to find more skillful, you know, more loving ways to relate to this person. And that is what fierce compassion is. It's so essential. And again, it takes time out just to be conscious of that. So, yeah, so there were three things that really um, spoke to me and um, made me smile as I was reading through. (laughs) And the other thing that made me smile hugely was all the fabulous worksheets that you offer us, the readers. It, you know, to be reflective because a lot of this deep learning and this um, these shifts that we seek to bring for ourselves, it takes a lot of reflection, right? And so to help us develop the qualities and skills so that we can live in a more gentle and loving way with ourselves and with others. The one I really liked was befriending problems. Oh, yes. And I love that because it comes, you know, circling back to the topic here of appreciative embodying, um, it offers a way to embody the qualities you seek to cultivate in yourself, in your relationships. Mm-hmm. And it, as I said, it gives that reflective process. So you can identify challenges and problems and then f- kind of reframe them from the negative state that you might be experiencing them into more positive opportunities. And so you, you, and this is where the embodiment piece comes in for me, Diane, you know, it's about domains in our lives, our physical domains, our emotional, our spiritual, our relational, our occupational, and any other. 
So how, that is just seems to me such an effective way to help people start to think, well, what is it that I want to cultivate in myself and what can I, you know, how can I develop my mindfulness practice around any of these domains? How you're finding people are responding to you with the worksheets, that one or any of the others, you know, are there, are there worksheets here that people most actively resonate with and you find most helpful, you know, with the comments that you're receiving? Well, it it goes the whole spectrum. There are some people who don't like the worksheets, but most people do and most of them find them helpful because it it takes the ideas in the books and allows you to directly apply it to your life. And I do think the befriending problem one um, is very popular. And there's also befriending problems meditation. And when I, I, I do have the videos all recorded um, online, so you can practice with a group if you'd like to do that. Um, but everyone also loved the befriending meditation that is related to the exercise that you are mm. describing and learning how to just, it is amazing. If you can just pause for a moment with kind of the story you have in your head about a problem and just see it from one, two, three different angles, slightly differently. It is amazing how possibilities open up that you didn't see before. And so, you know, things like, you know, it could the problem possible, if it were a teacher, you know, just imagine it were, even if you don't believe it is, imagine if it were, what would it be teaching you? You know, if it, if your problem was some way preparing you for something in life, what could that be? What might that look like? What would it be like to be in this situation if you didn't have the ability to put any meaning, good or bad, you know, right or wrong on top of the situation? What would it be to just see what it is without any story on top of it? And, you know, even if, you know, we're, you're just going through that pausing your story for even just two or three different ways of looking at your problem, it really is astounding how often a a, a resolution or a new possibility for how to handle it opens up pretty quickly for people. So yes, I do think the befriending problem um, one spoke to a lot of people. And of course, the chocolate exercises seem to be very popular too. So um, Diane, I'd like to just give you the opportunity to say how people, if you would like to provide that URL. And let me say just before you do that, that um, all of these links will be on our show notes page and that's on positivitystrategist.com slash PS124. And they'll find them there. But if you're if the if you're listening right now and you're jogging or in the garden or doing the washing up in a mindful manner, <laughs> you might like you might just like to listen to what Diane has to say about how you can connect with these beautiful resources. Oh, thank you. So the, there is a website for um, the book itself, and it is um, the title basically uh, www.mindfulnessforchocolatelovers, and it is lovers plural. Dot com. You can also find me at um, dianegayhart.com and you can follow me on Twitter at, at uh, Diane Gayhart. Wonderful. So this is awesome. So um, Diane, is there any question that you, you would like me to have asked that I failed to ask? I got carried away with just my own, my own curiosities. I think we covered quite a bit of, of territory. And so I feel, I, I thank you um, for doing that. And I guess the other thing, um, the one thing we, could, we maybe could have touched a little more on is just realizing that a lot of what we see around us in terms of how to be happy, which is to, you know, be thin, be rich, you know, have cool jobs, cool vacations and cool friends, um, all of those 
ways of pursuing happiness keep you happy for about three months, and then you kind of go back to a default setting. And so I think for a lot of people, it's very confusing sometimes. Well, you can even gather everything that society says you need to be happy, and you find yourself almost more despairing because you're still not happy. And so I just invite people to to really think about how am I going about thinking about happiness, pursuing happiness, and is it working for me? Because I do think we all are kind of handled through our, you know, society and the media roadmaps to happiness that just often don't work. And I just want people to know there are there are better maps out there, and they're I think um, very clear maps in terms of what does work. So I hope people take the time to explore that, whether it's through my book or other ways. That's lovely. So Diane, thank you for this conversation today. Yes, thank you so much for having me. So thank you for listening in today to Diane Gerhardt talk about her book, Mindfulness Meditation for Chocolate Lovers. And next week is in fact the final show for the season, season four in Appreciative Embodying. So I'm looking forward to doing a little bit of a wrap up and share with you what my experience has been as I have been conversing with all these amazing guests. So until then, thanks again for listening.